Good evening, my friends. Happy holidays to you. This is Daniel Cleland of the Daniel Cleland Podcast, of course. And tonight I invite you to join me for a holiday glass of wine here in the studio in Costa Rica. I'm here uh, by myself. I I just got back here from San Jose. We've uh, completed what I would say was an extremely enjoyable holiday season here in Costa Rica with my Costa Rican family, aka my girlfriend and her family, along with the remnants of the Soltara team, the incredible Soltara Healing Center team who stayed here for the Christmas break. There were just a few of us. And uh, actually, my sister, Catherine Cleland, joined me here in Costa Rica. She did a retreat just before the um, the Christmas break. She, her and her, her new fiance, Jack Morwood, came to Soltara before the Christmas break. They did a retreat with us. It was incredible. And on top of that, my old buddy, Sydney Smith, from Walkerton, Ontario, or Walkerton, Mild May, Clifford area, uh, who's a, a really awesome guy who I've known for probably 20 years or something like that. And uh, so the three of them joined us in Costa Rica for a retreat. It was amazing. I actually recorded one of my first podcasts with my sister, Catherine. And she's actually a really interesting interview because her and her fiance, Jack, decided they wanted to travel the world. And they worked for two years and saved up $80,000 to go traveling. And they went and they spent two years traveling the world. So uh, on one of these next episodes here in the next few weeks, I'm going to be releasing that podcast with Catherine as she goes into that and, uh, and all about our adventures together, which included a little bit of ayahuasca, of course. Um, she was right there at the beginning of my journey. So So that was pretty cool. Anyways, we finished up, you know, got over Christmas and I thought, all right, game over. No more fun times. It's time to get into work. You know, this, uh, this life is about inches, not miles or kilometers or meters. It's about inches. Ed Milet always talks about this. You know, you, you win by inches. The best athletes in the world win by inches, the best car racers in the world win by inches in some cases, but that's what it's all about, you know, is, is just being inches ahead of, uh, of your nearest competitor. So, you know what? Um, I decided that, uh, I'm just gonna, you know, I had a, a few days of, of downtime, of family time on my vacation, decided to get right back into work. So here we are. It is uh, December 28th. I'm in the studio and uh, we've got uh, a big doubleheader podcast with Ben Pakulski tomorrow, benpakulski.com of Muscle Intelligence. Really big community, really awesome bodybuilder and a fitness influencer and health influencer who's now getting into the realm of plant medicines a little bit and trying to bridge the gap between fitness and uh, and uh, kind of spirituality, I guess you can say, the mind-body connection. So we get lots of really amazing things coming up, really amazing, um, you know, announcements and projects that we're going to be working on this year. And of course, 2021 is already getting off to an amazing start, an amazing start. I mean, we are hosting a, a New Year's retreat here at Soltara 
everybody just got there yesterday, full group. Most of the people were able to get through all the kind of COVID restrictions and stuff like that. And uh, they're all here and they're all happy and they're going to spend New Year's Eve um, setting themselves up for life, you know, in the, in the Maloka instead of wasting their time uh, in a club somewhere, even though that's a ton of fun. When I start talking about inches here, you know, it's like you could either give yourself those extra six days of vacations or you could work on yourself. You could work on building your dreams. You could work on building your goals. You could work on getting ahead those few inches in life that are going to make you just that much better than your nearest competitor. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, anyways, that's kind of uh, where we're at right now. And so... I just kind of told you a little bit about my life where I'm at right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm here living in Costa Rica. I've been an entrepreneur since I was, uh, well, since 2013 was the last job I had. So now about, I guess, seven or eight years, I've been full-time entrepreneur. And I started my first company in 2011. Uh, so, you know, just almost, a, almost, uh, yeah, almost 10 years now I've been doing business, doing entrepreneurship and, um, starting, uh, my, my company from absolute scratch. You know, I, um, I started it, um, at a very small scale and, and built it up from there. So I've kind of experienced all the different levels of entrepreneurship and all the different phases and stages that I've had to go through to get to a point where, you know, here I am, I've got this great uh, healing center. Of course, I have, you know, partners and, and other people invested in it. And I've got a really great team and my great team has, you know, helps me run it to a great degree. You know, a lot of really great team members who some of, you know, Melissa, Jesse, uh, Matt, um, Ezio, you know, my dad's a big help there. And, uh, we have a whole bunch of facilitators and of course the healers who are absolutely incredible. So it's a huge blessing to be part of this big team and to have such great success, uh, with this team. Um, but I can tell you, you know, it absolutely feels incredible. And here I am, I feel like I'm really on the path as I like to put it. When you, you feel like you're going in the right direction, you feel like you're, you're doing the most that you can do in a healthy way. You feel like you're contributing to earth and you're contributing to people bettering their lives and you're really enjoying the heck out of life. You know, that is, that is really what's important to me. And I've always wanted to just enjoy life, but I always found it so difficult when I was kind of trapped in a job I didn't like and didn't have money to do the things I wanted and could never get time off and never had the freedom that I wanted out of life. I, I didn't have the adventure that I wanted in life. You know, I didn't have the relationships I wanted in life. I didn't have the success. And I, quite frankly, I didn't, I didn't really have the self-love that I wanted in life because I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Tonight, as I'm having a nice glass of red wine here in the studio by myself as I sit with you and, and share my personal story, that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, this uh, this um, solo cast that I want to do, I'm, I'm actually redoing it because I, I did it 
a few weeks ago and we were just getting started and I kind of started telling my story and I realized that it's a really long story and it belongs in two parts. Part one is before ayahuasca. Part two is after ayahuasca because they are two distinctly different phases of my life. And, and the whole thing, you know, kind of takes a little bit to talk about. So um, I wanted to start today with part one, the before ayahuasca part, and just really talk about some origins and talk about some important inflection points along the way for me that really helped me to see what my potential was and really the potential of anybody. If you, uh, you know, if you just fix your mindset and you, and you follow your dreams and you commit to your dreams more than anything and you put effort in, you apply yourself, you take risks, you have confidence in yourself and you build confidence in yourself through your own actions. And ultimately, sometimes you just have to have faith in the outcome. And sometimes you just have to have faith that if you do the right thing, the universe will kind of bend in your favor from time to time. And that's called luck. But, you know, I believe also that you create your own luck. And really luck is, someone said, I don't know who, but someone said, luck is where preparedness meets opportunity. And I totally believe that because you never know when those opportunities are going to come up. So you have to get busy right now, right now, and start making yourself better. Start leveling up in every way. And that's for me too. I, want, I, I had a ceremony a few uh, days ago with my sister and Jack and Sid, and um, it was a beautiful ceremony. You know, it was, it was just full of love and, and this, this pleasant kind of, you know, feeling washed over me and, and really showed me that, uh, that I do need to level up. You know, yeah, I'm on the path and everything, but I'm still playing small. And there's a lot of things that I could be doing better. I could be taking bigger risks. I could be communicating better. I could be putting myself out there more. I could be treating people better. I could be doing business better. I could be doing podcasts better. I could be writing more books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why not do all that stuff when you have the time to do it? Because as 2020 has shown us, urgency is paramount. We do not ever have as much time as we think we're going to have. How many times have you ever actually made plans to do something significant and then got it done right on time? That never happens. That never happens. There's always leeway in the time budget for extending deadlines because it's very rare that you actually hit deadlines if you're doing something significant. So the point is, time is short. Time is very short. And you know what? I'm less than one year away from being 40 years old. And let me tell you, time is very, very short. So it's time to get busy. So anyways, with that kind of preamble right there, let me get into the story of my life before ayahuasca. So I grew up in a town called Walkerton, Ontario, Canada. It's a town of 5,000 people, very much a, a blue collar kind of farm town. There's a power plant where a lot of people work, including my dad. A lot of people have regular trades, you know, uh, construction workers, uh, linesmen, <clears throat> electricians, uh, barbers and hairdressers, car mechanics, you know, gas station attendants, things like that. My mother was a hairdresser. My father uh, worked in a nuclear plant 
and he started off in uh, you know a very kind of entry level basic position there and, and over the course of 35 years he worked his way up to have some senior management level positions um, in technology and IT and, and business analyst and stuff like that so you know he worked his way up but at the end of the day still uh you know uh like a, a six-figure job and um you know he 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 did well in life he he saved and he he got uh you know his pension and he left and you know he's now an investor at soltara but uh you know at the, at the same time our upbringing was was fairly standard you know fairly normal there's you know we always heard around the house well we can't afford this and we can't afford that and you know i'm not made of money and stuff like this you know those those were common phrases and that's actually something i refuse to say right now i never say the words i can't afford that um even if i can't i never say that i never say those words it's not a limiting factor on my life um but anyways, you know, we had the basic cable or no cable at all. We had, you know, furniture that we kept for 15 years. Um, you know, we never, we always bought used vehicles and they were always, you know, kind of family vehicles. My dad had a, a 1977 uh, TR6 that he had for a while, but that was kind of just a summer uh, little toy he had since he was in a teenager. So anyways, point being... Um, <clears throat> It was nothing really special, my upbringing. And nobody really expected anything special from me. No one really expects anything special from anyone in my hometown. It's not a place that really raises remarkable people. It's not a place that produces remarkable people. It just isn't. There's not a lot of role models in the town. You know, there's... Um, people generally kind of follow in the footsteps of what their parents do. And that's actually one thing that I ran into difficulties with later because I, I, I never wanted to. And when I was kind of in my, you know, like twenties, like early twenties and late teens and stuff where all my, my peers were really doing following in the footsteps of their parents and was kind of all like, you know, parents were proud of them and all this stuff. Um, I always felt like a bit of an outcast there because I was not doing that. <clears throat> but um, yeah, you know, when people kind of fall in their footsteps of their parents and when you're, you're, you're kind of growing up in a place like Walkerton, Ontario, there's just, you know, not a ton of ambition, to be quite frank. There's just not a ton of ambition in the town itself. You know, people don't really have huge big visions if a big vision in walkerton is is getting out and uh you know uh, moving to one of the cities around the the town you know toronto or kitchener or london or guelph or barry you know it's it's generally the the people that i know not, and great people Let, don't get me wrong fantastic people i've got uh, you know, I had a great uh, group of friends and everything growing up there. Um, and uh, I still keep in touch with a lot of them right now. Fantastic people. I'm just saying, like, <clears throat> it was a huge anomaly for me when I first started traveling. When I first started living abroad and going, uh, you know, getting dirty and 
beat up and you know down and uh went down with the culture in in south america and in latin america just is not something that's very common where i grew up so anyways that's where i grew up went to a high school there um i think uh, in high school it proved to me a little more that I was a bit of an outcast. Um, I wasn't very well liked by, by a lot of people. Um, you know, got, got beat up a couple of times by, by older guys. And, you know, high school was a tough time for me. And I also had fun in high school. I also had friends, but I also had a lot of enemies and I always wanted to like, you know, go out and go to the parties with the older cool people and stuff like that but they would always kick me out and tell me I'm not welcome and sometimes beat me up or what have you um coolest memory from high school was playing uh playing music me and my friends in high school we started a heavy metal band and we we played heavy metal we played at a couple school concerts and we played at a couple parties I guess uh you know a first taste of entrepreneurship for me was when I organized a, um, a, a Battle of the Bands concert, which was just like, you know, a, a group of a few bands uh, that were all friends uh, growing up in high school. And, and I put on a show and we had a few bands play and everybody played cover songs of all these different heavy metal bands. And uh, I went and I brewed a whole bunch of uh, uh, homebrew beer kegs. And we went out to uh, a friend of ours uh, farm and uh, we had all these beer kegs and I sold tickets and um, made a little bit of money there. The, the, the concert was called Fist in Your Face. I drew a little like logo with a guy with a guitar and um, and uh, yeah, that was good fun until everybody started lighting hay bales on fire and uh, the police came and broke up the party. But, um, you know, that was maybe the first taste of entrepreneurship or, or even um, when I organized a couple of uh, breakaway tours. There's a company called Breakaway Tours in Ontario, which organized trips for students to, uh, to Quebec, Quebec City or Montreal for New Year's or spring break. They did spring break trips down to Florida and stuff like that as well. So I, you know, I wanted to organize these experiences, these parties. So I partnered up with this company. They had like a kind of ambassador program and I went around and tried to round up people to buy tickets and, and come out and do this program and, and go down and have a big party in Quebec city for new year. So did that for a couple of years and that was fun. Um, <clears throat> and I, you know what, to be honest, I wish then that someone would have told me that I should be an entrepreneur. I wish then that someone told me that job exists because I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about it. At the end of high school, you know, I had this great high school. I didn't do very well in school. In fact, I did terribly in school. Uh, my last semester of high school, I graduated with 350%, three classes and each one five zero five zero five zero literally my teacher's just saying just go just get the hell out of here there's what you need you're done leave go do something else with your life 
that's pretty much how my high school finished. And so, you know, when they say go do something else with your life, what do you do? Well, back in those days, we didn't really have the internet. I mean, we had the internet, but it wasn't like it is today. You know, I'm, I'm talking back in like 99 was when I was kind of planning to go to college. And, um, so back then we had these college calendars, they called them like basically a magazine with all of the different programs in it. Right. And the different requirements. And, um, you know, for me, university was totally out of the question because my marks were so terrible. Like, I'm, and I mean, the difference between starting grade nine and finishing grade 12 is staggering. Just to give you, like, when I was in public school, I was a super tryhard. I was not like a browner, but I was like a super tryhard. I took pride in my results. And, you know, I always did pretty well. Um, and actually in grade eight, I was student council president, believe it or not, student council president. Uh, I ran a campaign and, you know, I, I campaigned on having dance parties for the first time ever and bringing in a DJ at the little public school and stuff. So I won that. And, um, and uh, so I was, I was much different. I was also really overweight. I was really, really fat kid when I, like the last few years of public school, super, super overweight. And then when I got to grade nine, um, you know, I came into grade nine being really fat. And, but there was like, the, the high school was like a combination of multiple different public schools. So now all of a sudden, all these new kids knew me. They didn't know me. They didn't have any respect for me. And here I was this like fat kid who wasn't any good at sports and, you know, barely hitting puberty or not even hitting puberty. And um, <clears throat> so actually people started teasing me in grade nine, started calling me fat, started making fun of me, started like pushing me around and, you know, calling me all kinds of names and stuff. And I was like, whoa, this, uh, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, girls wouldn't talk to me and I was like starting to like girls and stuff. So anyways, I decided that, um, I didn't want to be fat anymore. When I was in grade nine, I, I was sick of being made fun of. And I said, you know what? Fuck this. I am going balls to the wall and I am going to lose this goddamn weight. So I learned a little bit about health and fitness. Like, I mean, before I was eating like McCain cakes for breakfast, for real bag after bag of Doritos, chips, chocolate bars, liter after liter of chocolate milk, pizza buffets, all you can eat, just stuffing my face. No joke. I used to like go into friends like when I was over at friends houses and like they would have some like wagon wheels or something in the cupboard I would like grab a few and go in the bathroom and scarf them down just I was just like a food addict like you wouldn't believe so anyways when I got into grade 10 I decided like I'm losing this weight I, that was actually in grade nine and I spent basically from about May of grade nine to about the September of grade 10 so just like a few months aggressively dieting aggressively exercising after dark I was actually so embarrassed about exercising after dark 
or about exercising and actually trying to lose weight. Um, that I, I exercised after dark when no one could see me. I'd run around the town and if I saw somebody on the street, I'd like, like try to hide from them and like run around them because I was so embarrassed. And I started hang, once I started to lose weight, the cool kids started to accept me. And then with the cool kids, you know, started hanging out and like started taking acid and smoking weed and drinking alcohol, but mostly just acid and weed for the first kind of, you know, year. Um, and by taking a bunch of acid, that helped me lose weight as well, you know, because we'd go out and we'd spend the whole night like walking around the town, getting in trouble, but we wouldn't be eating. We'd be out kind of running around, playing, walk, you know, burning calories, but not eating. And I would stay up all night. Um, and so I was actually in one way being healthier and in another way being less healthy. Um, but I was comfortable with that because my most important objective at that time was losing weight. So that summer, when I was in grade nine, I was like 188 pounds of pure fat. I was like maybe five, six, like barely hit puberty. Like, like this is not 188 pounds of muscle. Like I'm 188 pounds right now or less. Like I weigh less right now. I'm six feet tall. You know, I've got a good amount of muscle. Um, but back then I was not exercising. I was pure fat. I had serious man boobs and I was just like ugly. I looked at myself in the mirror after I weighed myself and I was 188 pounds. I'm like, dude, what the fuck have you let yourself get to? So anyways, I went aggressively into that. And over the course of those months, I lost 60 pounds. So when I go back to school, so we left, you know, left grade nine in like June and then grade 10, I come back and I'm like 120 something pounds, 125 pounds, 128 pounds, went way down in size. Then I became super skinny, like a twig. I was like a twig. And, um, everybody's like, Whoa, what happened to you, man? And I was totally comfortable with people knowing that. Or, or thinking anyways, thinking that it was just the acid. Oh, I just took a bunch of acid over the summer, man, you know, dazed and confused. Um, and I thought that was more acceptable for me than, than actually telling people that I put effort into losing weight. If you can believe that, that's kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of an odd way to think, but, but that's how my juvenile mind was thinking at the time. So anyways, I spent grade 10, 11, and 12 just wasting time, hanging out with the cool kids, skipping class, uh, you know, doing drugs, going to parties. Um, parties became like my core focus. And I was still working out, you know, I was on the rugby team, but, you know, we'd go to games and all the guys would get together and, and drink on the bus and stuff like that and getting fistfights in the rugby games. And it was a real kind of rough around the edges town and uh, I don't know if it still is. I don't spend a lot of time there anymore. But um, anyways, uh, so getting through that, you know, coming out of grade 12, like there was just no chance I was going to university. So um, I had to pick a college program. And flipping through this calendar, it's like, you know, assistant, technician, technologist, you know, uh, just 
all different kinds of kind of mediocre professions, right? And, you know, what's the starting salary, average salary, percent of like jobs available and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So having no idea what I wanted to do with myself was just like um, not solved by looking through a college calendar. So anyways, ended up picking computer programmer analysts because remember I said like, you know, following in my dad's footsteps, everybody was kind of following in their parents' footsteps. And of course, you know, I wanted my dad to be proud of me. So, so I picked computer programmer analysts in my first, uh, my first crack at college. So I went there, I went to London, Ontario when I was 18 and I did that. I mean, just got into all kinds of trouble. We got, uh, we got evicted from our apartment the very, within the first six weeks of being there, me and my friend who, uh, played metal with me. Um, you know, it was just, just an ongoing kind of fuck up. If you look at my high school life that way, I, remained focused on the parties. I did enough schoolwork just to like barely make it past and, you know, keep my, uh, my, uh, parents happy as they were paying for my tuition. And, uh, you know, I was kind of interested, but not enough to keep going with anything. It always bored me. It, it like every path in those kind of technician programs was just like leading me toward a bench job. And I just, well, one, I didn't do very well because I didn't really apply myself. And two, I wasn't really that interested in it. So I went from the first year computer programmer analyst to into the second year, I changed over to electronics engineering technician. And I did that for a year and I did okay. And then, you know, got into some of the more complex stuff and like, I didn't really, you know, want to advance circuitry and stuff like that. Okay. So then I moved into electrical engineering technician thinking that I would be more a fan of big wires rather than little wires. And, um, did that for a year and, um, didn't really take to that either. So in my fourth year, I said, you know what? I just want to get out of here and just start working. Um, it was a hell of a good time, but I was just wasting everybody's time. I was wasting my own time. I was like 23 or something like that. 22, just wanted to get out into the world. So the fourth year, I did a couple more courses and pieced some of the courses together that I got from the electrical and electronics courses. And I just basically graduated with, I didn't even graduate. Let's be honest. I didn't really graduate. I had enough courses to graduate, but I would have had to take a couple extra steps to actually get this certificate, which I never did because I never used it. And it was not really anything significant anyways. So let's just call it what it is. Four years of college, a complete waste of time and money and not my money, but my dad's money and money I borrowed from the bank. So I came out of college with a bunch of money owing to the bank. What did I do? I got into sales. I started working in sales, you know, no education required. All you had to do was be able to communicate, to persuade people to do business with you. So I thought, okay, you know, I can do that. I've done it before, right? I did it when I organized the um, 
Quebec City trips. I also did it when I organized the concert. And I also might have had a few other extracurricular sales activities while I was in high school as well. So I took this job selling air purifiers. Nothing exciting. It was like a vacuum cleaner company. They would, they had a bunch of uh, ladies in the office that would scroll through the phone books. Like back in those days, you, you had the big, the big paper phone books that's, that, that disclosed everybody's address and phone number. And they would go through there and they would call um, every single person in the phone book and tell them, Congratulations, you've just won a free two-night, three-day trip to Mexico. All we need you to do is let this nice young gentleman into your house to show you this product. Enter me, armed with a binder full of scary facts and figures about air quality and dust mites and all kinds of stuff. And I'd come in and I'd show them this fact and figures book and talk to them and build rapport with them and then pull out my big machine, my air purifier, which would suck up all the dust in the air and you could see it on the electronic filter and um, it smelled nice and everything like that. So, you know, if I did a good job, they would buy the machine. But, uh, you know, there was, well, that was a commission only job, right? My first ever job, my commission only job. And, um, you know, actually in the summers before that I was working for various kind of, uh, summer job technical companies, like doing network cabling and overhead doors and stuff like that, kind of in line with my technical programs. But this is my first sales job, my first commission only sales job. And, um, you know, so if I didn't sell, I didn't get paid. And if I didn't sell, the company didn't get paid. So they were wasting their time if I wasn't selling. And I was wasting my time if I wasn't selling. So in a lot of cases, you know, it started off kind of fun. And then after a few months, um, you know, it became different. It became about the numbers. It became about, my God, I don't want to be in this person's house. I just want to close this deal and get the hell out of here. And, you know, in some cases it was like, wow, these people really look like they're hurting economically. I really don't want to try to rope them into buying one of these things. These things cost $3,000. And, you know, if you didn't have the money, we were working with some kind of loan agencies that would qualify you right then and there uh, over the phone and then they could get you the loan and then you just, you know, sign the paperwork, give them, you know, your, uh, uh, void credit card receipt and then bada boom, bada bing, you've got your air purifier, but now you're roped into a loan. So, you know, there were times when I thought like, okay, yeah, these people have got some cash. This is fine. You know, they look interested and the sales good and everything like that. There are other times when I was like, whoa, you know, I don't really want to be here. And, and, you know, that's normal. But then you had this guy, the sales trainer, like the sales manager, who then would, every time I was in the home, he would want me to get them on the phone, right? Get to call them and let him know how it was going. So I'd be in the home and I'd have to call him. And, um, 
then he would of course push me to sell them and he would push them and he would try to kind of persuade them to sign the contract. And, you know, he would like, uh, counter their objections and stuff like that. Typical kind of, you know, sleazy, uh, vacuum cleaner sales kind of, uh, behavior. So after a while that got me feeling uncomfortable and the straw that broke the camel's back was when they actually set up a bunch of appointments in Walkerton and they scheduled me to go see my grandparents, like my sweet grandparents. I go to their house and actually I didn't even want to go to their house. Um, with, and try to sell them because at that point I didn't believe in the product. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back and um, ended up quitting that. The result of that was that I liked sales to an extent, but I didn't want to like feel like I was ripping people off. I didn't want to like go into people's homes and ask them for their money. So I went to, uh, I, I moved up the sales ladder. I, I took a job for a chemical company, just doing uh, business to business now. So you know, still pretty basic, a chemical, a family business selling cleaning chemicals and pool chemicals and sometimes industrial chemicals and stuff like that. And I got, I got there and I started doing this job and, and it was more interesting because I was going business to business. So I felt like, you know, if I'm going to be closing these people, they're they're people who are already making money, businesses who are making money. And this is a business expense. It's something they need anyways. So there's better if they buy it from me, et cetera, et cetera. Did that for about six months and then, you know, just kind of got bored of it, but, but was enjoying the sales game. So then I, uh, I got another job doing industrial sales. So big contracts. So I took a job with an electrical safety products company. So it was kind of like in line with my college education in electro uh, electrical and electronics. Um, So that was kind of cool. Actually, I took that job. I spent about a year working for this guy, small business owner who had a a specific product that he had the rights to for Canada. And so, you know, I was just basically taking his product. I kind of managed the sales and and installations for his company. It was pretty much just a one man show driving around Ontario, making deals with factories and doing kind of bigger deals and stuff like that. So that was kind of starting to make some decent money, but making it from factories and like, from, uh, you know, from big production facilities. And then he wanted to grow out West to Alberta. And, um, I was like, okay, perfect. I was feeling the call to adventure. So I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I've got a guy here who can take over for me in Ontario. I hired a, a buddy of mine, Blake Goodall. And he, um, you know, he took over for me in Ontario that what I had built up there. And then I moved out to Alberta and, uh, did, uh, did a, uh, trip across the country. I drove across the country, uh, across Canada with all my stuff and went out to Alberta and moved into a place in Calgary, Alberta, and started building this guy's company out in Alberta. So, you know, that was also good. I ended up driving around the whole province of Alberta, going from factory to factory to factory to factory, started doing some contracts in British Columbia as well, my first time in BC. And, uh, you know, that kept me busy for about another year or two, I think. I think I worked for him for a total about two years. And, um, yeah, that kind of was like my last real moment of just being like 
a normal person, I guess. That's, that's a weird way to say that. But so you can see how I kind of followed the traditional path there, you know, going to high school, going to college, getting a job after college, just working, 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 kind of doing, you know, nothing real amazing, but just typical sales jobs working in the trades and sales. And, um, you know, after a couple of years, um, I just kind of got bored of that. And, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that, I should say. And it involves a girl. Um, there was a, a, a sweet Swiss miss that I was super infatuated with um, who I met back in high school. She actually came with me on, on one of these uh, trips to Quebec City. Um, but she was always like dating one of my buddies. I was just captivated and I always wanted to, to, to get her for myself. And, um, you know, I ended up going to visit her when I was like 22 or something like that in Spain. And, and, uh, you know, we had a little kind of warm, warmish encounter and, uh, that like just got, got me fired up and, then so she actually came with me to Alberta and she actually drove with me across the country to Alberta and she lived with me in Calgary for you know a few a year maybe or something like that I was living with a group of friends all everybody from Walkerton there and um you know I wanted her so bad I was dying for this girl but she would never ever give me a chance I mean we'd be like get close and she knew that I wanted her but she would never and she always had someone else she always had another boyfriend you know but we'd hang out we'd be friends like not the good kind of friends but the worst kind of friends so anyways then uh just around the end of that time in in Calgary she split she left she was an adventurer, a world traveler, spoke multiple languages and like just this real, I admired her. I admired her so much. Um, and you know, I always looked up to her and like the fact that she ditched me, she ditched me because of my small mind, because, you know, I was, I, I just, even if I went out to Calgary, I was still this small town hick from Walkerton with thinking small drinking, doing drugs all the time and, uh, just not really making anything out, out of my life. You know, I was doing a very, I, I thought what I was doing was really cool at the time, but she's like, dude, it's, it's pretty standard what you're doing. You know, I was, I, I had a Kia Spectra, you know, I was driving around a Kia Spectra to all you Kia lover lovers out there. I salute you. Um, but I thought that was a dope car and she's like, eh. I mean, not really, but she'd been around the world, you know, coming from Europe, lived in Switzerland, she'd been all these European countries where they drive Audis and everything like that. And like, you know, she was just way more advanced than me. So she left me in Alberta to go and work for the United Nations. Right. And so I'm like, hmm. after she left, I was heartbroken. I grieved, you know, and I didn't even like get anything 
with her. It was just like, I wanted, I was just, I wanted and I could not have. I could see, but I could not touch. I could smell, but I could not taste. And to me, that was just, that was the most crushing thing. And you know what? I almost felt similar to one I did when I was in grade nine and I decided, you know, these girls aren't liking me because I'm fat. I said, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not, I don't want to be fat anymore. So I lost weight. You know what? When I was then, I said, fuck this. I don't want to be boring anymore. I don't want to be some boring fucking hick from Walkerton anymore. I am going to become Indiana Jones. I'm going to become an adventurer. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to learn new languages. I'm going to become somebody special. I'm going to do something big with my life. You know what? And I think I probably just realized that that was the turning point for me was that was the moment when I realized that the old me is dead. This guy, this guy who lives with a bunch of his Walkerton friends in a house in Calgary and who's, you know, just doing the same shit he was when doing five years before and will be doing five years later and, you know, making just enough to pay rent and, and, and pay the bills and drive around in his Kia Spectra. And, you know, at 25 years old, I was 25 at that time. I said, fuck it. I said, I am done with this. So I was craving a trip and I, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to Brazil. I always kind of wanted to go to Brazil. I mentioned that, that we used to play heavy metal. One of my favorite bands was Sepultura and they, they were from, they are from Brazil. They're broken up, but they used to play this really amazing music and they used to, you know, sing some of their songs in Brazilian Portuguese, which I always thought was just this wicked language, a super cool language. They always had this like Brazilian tribal indigenous artwork on their album artwork and stuff like that. So anyways, I was called to Brazil. I wanted to go down and check out the jungle and the beaches and the women and the music. And like, I just thought Brazil was all like this big Sepultura paradise. So I booked a six week trip down to Brazil. I mustered all of my funds. I think I maxed out a couple of credit cards and I planned the trip. I, I, um, uh, researched the country. I bought a big paper map. You know, I didn't have like a smartphone then it was 2006. And, um, you know, I bought a big uh, map and I laminated it and I got some dry erase markers so I could like map out my, my destinations and stuff. And I researched about all these different destinations and, um, I, um, yeah, planned it out. And I flew down, I think at the beginning of December in, uh, 2006 and I stayed, I flew into Rio de Janeiro and I spent a week there. Or so at a hostel there, made some cool friends and that just really opened me up. It was like, wow. Then I, I went from this boring Canadian, you know, winter in December with all the same kind of small, you know, small thinking people and flew down to this place where like now I'm just surrounded by all these crazy mofos from different countries, Australians, English, Irish, Brazilian, Chilean, Spanish, New Zealanders, you know, Canadians, Americans. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And everybody's like in their twenties and thirties or even like, you know, in 18, 19, whole bunch of really, you know, beautiful young ladies kind of always, you know, beached out and everything like that. And everybody was traveling and 
interchanging languages and interchanging cultures. And I'm like, whoa, this backpacker hostel is the coolest place I've ever been. Um, it immediately took me. And like, I'm like, oh, this is just amazing. I go down to the beach and I work out on the beach and I was like going to the gym and then eating in all these Brazilian restaurants, learning Portuguese. I bought a CD-ROM, you know, before I left and like learned some Portuguese. So when I got there, I could like practice Portuguese with people. I was totally sold. And I did this wicked six week trip, went from Rio de Janeiro down to Ilha Grande. From there, I went down to Parachi. Then from there, I went down to um, Florianopolis. And then from there, I came back up to Rio de Janeiro. And in that trip, after well, I got back to, uh, to Rio, when I say Rio de Janeiro, that's how they say Rio in Brazilian. Um, when I got back to Rio, I got back there for New Year's. I spent Christmas in Floripa, and then I got back to Rio for New Year's and stayed at this hostel again that I, I stayed at the first week I was there in December and partied it up for New Year's. Oh, it was a good time. You know, all the fireworks on the beach in Rio and Copacabana. And, um, you know, it's like weird. It's like I was there for six weeks and every week I had like a new fling with an, like a new like love like I fell in love with a different girl every week. It was people moving around and like, you know, you like intersect. And then when I got back for new year's, I fell in love with this, uh, Brazilian Italian girl called, uh, Renata, 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 Renata in, in Portuguese. And, um, man, she was great. She was beautiful. And, and, and the people in the hostel actually offered me a job so I ended up spending my last few weeks at that hostel up working on the rooftop patio bar, shaking caipirinhas from about 4 p.m. until 11 p.m. every day, and then partying from 11 p.m. until about 4 a.m. every day. And I was hanging out with this beautiful girl, Hinata, and making all these cool friends. I was working on the bar with this dude from England named Henry. He was awesome. And... um Man, it was just like the coolest thing. I was hanging out with this group of Australian guys, Smack and Pecker and Bluey and Dingo. And uh, um, I just co totally changed my life. And then when, when, when my friend Pedro uh, drove me back to the airport, he's this Brazilian guy who was working with the, hosp the hostel doing airport transfers, I was like, I told him, man, like I had tears streaming down my face. I'm like, man, it feels like this is there. Somebody's tearing my heart out right now, leaving this place. And he says, well, my friend, I guess you know where to find your heart when you want, when you want it back again. So I was like, fuck dude, I'm, you nailed it. Like I'm coming back here. This is where my heart is. So I go back to Canada in the middle of January to my old job, right? And if you know anything about Calgary in the middle of January, it is cold. It is so cold. You have to plug your car in. Cars always have like a little electrical cord dangling down with an, with an outlet on it, with an electrical plug on it. Because it, sometimes it gets so cold, your car won't start. You have to plug your block heater in so that the car will actually start. So I go up from like midsummer in Rio 
on the beach wearing nothing but board shorts and bare feet every single day going back to this frozen wasteland of winter to this shitty job driving around my Kia Spectra in Calgary. And I get there, I'm like, is this even a decision? Like, fuck this. Fuck this. Completely fuck this in every single way. I am not doing this shit anymore. I'm going back to Brazil. So I did, man. I, I didn't have any money. I was totally broke. I spent all my commissions. I, you know, I didn't make a salary for those six weeks that I was off. And, you know, I had maxed out all my credit cards. I had car payments that were late. Like I was one broke ass man. And so I needed to find a job to get me back to Brazil. Now, on that trip I mentioned that I went over to Spain when I was 22 to see that Swiss girl. Um, on the ride back, I met a young lady on the plane and she was traveling for her company and we had a chat and she thought I would make a good tour leader. I said, what's that? And she showed me a brochure. This company was called Butterfield and Robinson. And um, so you know, I had that idea in my mind. I looked up this, this, this company beforehand, like, you know, years before, uh, when I was 22, 23. And because at that time I wanted to go back to Spain to be with the Swiss girl. But anyway, so I tried to get a job with this Butterfield and Robinson place in Spain, but they didn't, they didn't ever hire me. My Spanish wasn't any good and all that kind of stuff that didn't work out. Plus the Swiss girl wasn't interested in me anyways. So anyways, that kind of fell off, off the table. And then um, when I decided to go back to Brazil, I was like, whoa, I wonder if there's one of these companies that work in Brazil. So I checked out Butterfield and Robinson and yeah, they did have trips to Brazil, but they're like bike tours and stuff. And it wasn't the right fit, but I'm like, I wonder if there's more companies like this. And I started doing research. Turns out there were. So I found more companies and I applied I applied and applied and applied and applied. I found the right person. I investigated the company. I found the person to talk to and I wrote up insanely good applications. I embellished everything about myself and I made it really well structured, really well communicated. And I used my persuasive language and I got interviews. That's all I need is an interview. If I can get an interview, I can probably sell you. So I got inter- I got interviews with a couple of different companies. I think Toucan was one, and I think uh, Gap Adventures was another. G A P G period A period P period stands for Great Adventure People. Used to be called that. Now it's called G Adventures. So um, if you guys know of G Adventures, it's this company. So I uh, I uh, got an interview with them and you know it ended up working out that I got a job with them when I was 25 years old and uh, so a couple months after I was after I returned to Canada from Brazil I think it was in like about May of that year so I returned in January and I think in April or May I I I I was hired by G Adventures to go and become a tour leader Now, I told them straight up on the phone that my goal is to get back to Brazil. 
So they're like, okay, well, we have a whole bunch of different countries we work in, you know, so we'll see how it goes, but you know, but, but that's good to know. But anyways, um, you can go and do your training in Guatemala and then we'll see how it goes from there. So, um, I quit my job working for the electric safety products company and I flew down to Guatemala to Antigua. Well, first I went to Guatemala city. Then I went up to Antigua and I met up there with a couple other Canadian ladies and, um, and my trainer, an American uh, woman named Leah Griffin, who still works for G adventures, incredible person. Uh, the other two ladies were Christy something or other and Melissa Meisel, Melissa Missile. Can't remember Chrissy's last name. Anyways, we had a really good time. We trained for a couple of weeks in Guatemala. They gave us all kinds of like problem solving exercises and made us like do things in Spanish and stuff like that. Leah was a real hard ass, um, but also a really good person. And I passed. I passed the test. They gave me the job, but they said my Spanish was shit. So I lied in my resume and they were kind of pissed off, but I did good enough in the problem solving that they were going to let me pass. And the problem was my Spanish was not good enough to go and work in South America. So they put me in Costa Rica, believe it or not. In 2007, in May, I started working in Costa Rica for G Adventures as a tour leader. I got rid of everything in Canada. My Kia Spectra, I left it with one of the guys I was living with, you know, under the handshake agreement that he was going to make my car payments for me and, uh, and use the car. So he took it. He started using it. He just didn't make any car payments on it. And they eventually repossessed it. But I didn't really care at that point. Um, so anyways, uh, I basically got rid of everything. I got a backpack. I actually used the same backpack I went to Brazil with got all my beach clothes together, stuff like that. And I went to live in Costa Rica and start working in Costa Rica. The first trips that they gave me were leading groups of people, maximum 15 people, groups from all over the world, you know, all these different countries um, on this 15 day trip from San Jose, Costa Rica to uh, Puerto Viejo, Costa Rica to Bocas del Toro, Panama, down to David, Panama, and Boquete, Panama, and El Valle, Panama, and Panama City. 15 days, I'd finish in Panama City. Pick up another group, and then go all the way back up to San Jose. Pick up another group, then go all the way back down to Panama City. And that was my territory. And that's what I did for like, you know, seven months. Just traveled around Costa Rica and Panama, leading groups around, meeting all kinds of awesome people, learning Spanish, getting in all kinds of trouble, you know, um, just having the best time of my life and, uh, you know, working, I was working, I was getting paid, man. I was getting paid to travel, getting paid to lead people around. It was only 25 bucks a day, but all of my expenses were covered. You know, I had a food allowance. They paid for all my accommodations and transportation, everything like that. And sometimes people would leave me tips. So I was actually able to like basically travel around. I was on a shoestring. I was like a budget backpacker traveler. I was really hardcore, really rugged. I didn't need much back then. All I needed was basically cold beer and some protein and I'm good to go, you know? Um, so anyways, I did that. Um, and practice my Spanish a bit. And then guess what? 
in December of that year, 2007, they called me up and they said, we got an opening in South America, man. Do you want to go? I'm like, hell yeah. What trip is it? They told me what trip it was. And I just about lost my mind because it was 42 day trip from Caracas, Venezuela to Rio de Janeiro. Six weeks, one trip, six weeks called the Amazon and Atlantic. And I looked at that and I'm, I'm like, wow, man, this looks like the mother of all adventures. So in December of that year, just before Christmas, I had to fly down from, uh, from San Jose, Costa Rica. I remember the day I flew. I remember the day I flew to San Jose. I remember looking at like the, the, the city as I flew over top of it, flew down to Caracas, Venezuela. And, uh, I remember getting to Caracas and grabbing a bottle of, of, uh, Venezuelan rub in the airport and jumping in the first like taxi that I, it was like a, an American muscle car with this dude. Like it, Venezuela was an interesting country in 2007. And, uh, so I, I cruised, you know, through Venezuela into Caracas, get to my, my, uh, you know, hotel down in like, I think the Grand Grand Savannah or something, something like that was not a pretty neighborhood to stay in. Let me tell you, um, you know, dumpsters full of trash on every street corner, rats openly running around, heard a couple gunshots and saw someone running away. Uh, it was definitely sketch balls. But uh, anyways, I was in Venezuela, got to Venezuela and uh, was there to start my new trip. So I picked up a group of eight people in Venezuela, seven women and one man. Um, it's not as good as it sounds. <laughs> Believe me, there are seven women that were all completely different ages and completely different personality types from 18 to 62. One, one teenager, one in her 20s, one in her 30s, one in her 40s, one in her 50s, and two in their 60s. And, uh, you know, none of them liked each other. They're from all, all from different countries. And the, the one dude that was there was like the most like rude, interpersonally inept person. And all the ladies couldn't stand him. And I couldn't stand him from Australia, worked in the mines in Australia, went to an all boys school. And, you know, so that was six weeks and it was my first time in all of these places and yeah, I had a little bit better Spanish, but it wasn't that good. And my Portuguese wasn't that good either. So we basically traveled through Venezuela uh, from Caracas to Santa Fe uh, on the beach. We spent Christmas on the beach. And um, then we went from Santa Fe down to Ciudad Bolivar. And uh, from there, we went into uh, Canaima National Park and the, the, the Grand Savannah. And uh, checked out Angel Falls, Salto Angel, for you Spanish speakers. And then we spent New Year's in uh, Santa Elena on the coast of, uh, of uh, northern Brazil and uh, Venezuela. So we went through Venezuela, got to the northern border of Brazil, cut into Brazil just after New Year's that year, um, and went by land down to Manaus, this big uh, metropolis in the middle of the Amazon where we did our Amazon jungle. Like I was like Amazon jungle. Yes. Like I, I always wanted to be in the jungle. I'd love, I've loved being in nature since I was a kid. 
So we did Amazon jungle trips and hung out in Manaus. And then we took a river boat for five days down the Amazon river. So like this big, this boat, kind of a real low quality cruise ship kind of thing. Um, traveling from Manaus, Brazil, all the way down to Belém on the mouth of the Amazon river. And then in Belém, we got off and then it was by land the whole way by land, by buses, by cars, by taxis, all the way down to Salvador da Bahia. So we, there were multiple stops there. Like there was like, uh, Cabure, San Luis, Bahirinha, Solinda, Recife, Natal, um, various places, uh, Jericoacoara, Fortaleza, all these different places along the northeastern coast of Brazil getting down to um, Salvador da Bahia where we spent once by the time we got down to Salvador da Bahia it was carnival carnival 2008 in Salvador da Bahia so I spent the first little bit of carnival in 2008 in Salvador it was pre it was actually sorry pre-carnival in Salvador and we got down to Rio just in time for carnival 2008 so we got down to Rio I went to the same hostel in Rio that year and met, excuse me, met with, um, a bunch of people who I was there the year before with, except I left before Carnival the year before. So I got there, did Carnival with my group. It was crazy. It was like, to me, that was a real pivotal moment for me. That was a real, not pivotal. I would say like, confirmation that was confirmation to me when i got down i was like yes yes look at that i wanted to get back down here i was committed i was committed i set my mind on it i got ingenuitive about it i i tried to solve the problem i found a creative way to solve the problem and i executed on it i kept my mind on i executed on it i executed on it i executed on it and i managed to get back to this place where I originally wanted to go and I did it without paying for it. I didn't pay for it. I didn't have any money. I couldn't pay for it. I didn't pay for anything. I did it all with hard work, with selling myself, with being creative, with learning and adapting and working hard and applying effort and taking risks, you know, taking a lot of risks that year. But I got right back to where I wanted to be. And to me, that was a huge affirmation that yes, I could do things. And it was almost a spiritual realization. It was a spiritual moment, realizing that when I got back down there. So then I accomplished that goal. I achieved that goal. That was what I wanted to achieve. And then, um, you know, I kept working for that company. I picked up another group right after Carnival in Rio. And I took them all the way back up, all the way up to Salvador, all the way up the coast of Northeastern Brazil to Belang, went all the way back up the river, six days going back up the river rather than five, got to Manaus, did another jungle tour, then went all the way up overland to Boa Vista, Brazil, and then cut into Santa Elena, Venezuela, and then went up to Salto Angel, and then went up to Ciudad Bolivar, then went up to Santa Fe, then stopped in Caracas. And then in Caracas, I picked up another group and went all the way back down, except the third time I got to Rio and instead of giving me another trip back up, they gave me 
a 17-day trip from Rio to Buenos Aires, Argentina, Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina. So I ended up taking that same group that I picked up in Caracas all the way down to Argentina over 59 days. I worked for 59 days straight. Um, and after that, I was like, all right, man, I'm done. <laughs> I've had enough. Um, I was tired. And I also wanted to do something a little bit more with my life. I was, this, this was now starting to get to be routine, you know, like, uh, my languages were getting better, but like just constantly traveling, constantly being with tourists, constantly, you know, drinking and partying. Um, it was starting to get to be routine. Speaking of drinking, I'm going to have a little sip of wine right now. So anyways, I wanted to, another reason was I was seeing a lot of things that I didn't knew, I didn't knew existed. For example, being out in Cabure, uh, Brazil, up in the northeastern corner of Brazil, like in these remote beaches where you'd think there's like no activity here at all, like no, no people, but the beaches were full of pollution full of plastic, full of fishing nets, full of bottles and lighters and shit out in these beautiful, beautiful remote beaches, you know, and it was just like that all the way around South America was just, there was trash in the river, you know, like there was a lot of, uh, carbon pollution, you know, the boats were smoky, the cars were smoky. Uh, and there were glimmers of hope, like in Brazil, they run a lot of their cars off of ethanol and stuff like that. But I just saw things that inspired me to want to do something bigger. I've always been kind of like an I, I environmentalist a little bit, environmentalist. So anyways, after achieving my goal and getting back down to South America, I wanted to pursue an actual higher education, not like a, just a technical job. You know, I was kind of now I was more worldly. I was speaking different languages. I was older. I was, you know, 26, 27 at that time. And, um, so I went, I quit that job. I went back to Canada and my objective was to go and, and start a university program at University of British Columbia. And that program was called natural resources conservation. That was my objective. That's what I wanted to do. Environmental management. So, so I go back to Canada. I put together my college application, my university application for UBC, and I get denied because of course, as I told you, my marks were absolute shit all through high school and all through college. I looked like a total idiot. I looked like a total flunkered. I know I'm not, but they don't know because they don't know me. You know, it just, it, 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 it's, it's just terrible. And so, you know, that those kind of records, people use that to judge you. And, um, you know, I knew that it was just cause I didn't apply myself, but how can you even explain that either? So, you know, what are you not going to apply yourself in the new thing either? So anyways, um, I was still set on this program, but what they said was your marks aren't good enough to get into UBC, but what you can do is possibly apply at a secondary school, like it, not a secondary high school, but like another school in British Columbia that has university transfer programs. So that's what I did. I ended up going to Okanagan college where I did university transfer programs. I did a year of university transfer programs. I had to upgrade my grade 12 math uh, course. So I took grade 12 math. I took high school math when I was 27 years old and I took grade 11 English 
when I was 27 years old and I took a bunch of university transfer programs on top of that at this, uh, when I, I moved to Kelowna, British Columbia and I did this study, um, because my objective was to upgrade, um, my, my transcript and show that I could do something that I was more mature now and that I could do something. So I spent a year there, two semesters, and I actually applied myself and I, and I tried hard and I did well. I, I graduated everything with like, you know, 85 average or something like that. Not insanely well, but, um, pretty well, well enough that, uh, you know, I felt proud of myself and I was pretty happy. I was in a pretty good place. You know, I was pretty stoked. Um, so then, uh, actually in 2009, so I started that in 2008 and, uh, went over 2008 to 2009. And in 2009, um, I was uh, in a, in an environmental issues course in the university transfer program. And my professor, Stephanie Bunclark, uh, asked, well, she, she announced to the class that she was doing a field trip to Vanuatu in the South Pacific with a field stop with a stopover in Australia, uh, in Brisbane. And this would be a, a conservation assignment, a, a population density study on a type of, of crab of coconut crabs that are endemic to Vanuatu. And my sense of adventure got the best of me. I decided to go on this trip, even though I didn't have the money, they, it, she had organized it so it would be considered a full-time trip so I could apply for student loans to, to use on it. And I went there and, you know, once my sense of adventure got like kind of moving, um, and actually there was a really stupid kind of thing that happened, uh, a couple years before that, or, or a little bit of time before that, my sister, Emily loves to go to these psychics and she went to a psychic one time and the psychic told her that I was going to move to Australia and find this beautiful girl and fall in love. And it was going to be great. And of course, as I explained, my luck with women was not the best at that time. So, um, so anyways, uh, I kind of heard that and I had this like already in the back of my mind that I was going to go to Australia and fall in love with a beautiful woman from the psychic who told my sister that. And so when this opportunity came up, I was like, Ooh, maybe this is it. And so I got excited. My sense of adventure kicked into gear. And then, so before I left to go on this trip, it was like a three week trip or something like that in, uh, in May or June of 2009. And, um, I applied for a university with my newly achieved course credits with my new transcript from this year that I did in, uh, in, in Okanagan college with these like half decent marks. I applied at James Cook university in Townsville, Queensland, uh, Australia for an environmental studies program, something like that. And, uh, so anyways, I kind of told myself like, well, if I get this, if they accept me, I'll take it as a sign from the universe and I'll, and I'll, and I'll fucking do it. I'll stay. So I'm in Vanuatu and guess what? They respond and they say, congratulations. We've accepted you to James Cook university. So I'm like super thrilled. I'm like, Oh, sense of adventure overload. And then our, our, our stopover in Brisbane was, uh, at the end of the trip. So after our trip to Vanuatu, we went back to Brisbane. We spent like maybe a week there, something like that. And as soon as we got to Brisbane, I knew that I was accepted and I was like, okay, 
like overdrive, let's go. Um, so I, well, the group, the student group was going around and doing activities. I was like looking in the classified ads for jobs and I found, I found uh, a couple of jobs that I want to apply for, but the one job that I, that I had success with was this like a sales job, right? Um, a door to door sales job. I didn't really gather the full gravity of it until I kind of went to get started there. Um, but I, you know, I, uh, I went to, to an interview at this job. So before going out to this interview, I went to some secondhand store and got like a button up shirt and like, you know, I, all I had were hiking boots and, and like, you know, green khakis, like all weather khakis and stuff. I was not, you know, looking like a, a successful man. I was looking more like a hobo, but, um, you know, you can kind of walk around with a little bit of flair when you're from Canada in Australia. And, um, so I took like my last 70 bucks a couple of days before our, our student group was meant to fly back to BC. And I go to this job interview, just seeing if I could find something, you know, maybe if I get this job, then I can pay for the school and then I'm going to stay here, go to this job interview. And my trainer is like this friggin' swimsuit model, super hot, like drop dead jaw to the floor, gorgeous, super impressive personality, you know, really kind of strong personality, uh, really, really beautiful smile and like just this bubbly kind of, you know, forward kind of Australian woman. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the woman the psychic was telling me about. And, you know, so I'm like, okay, I, I, this is it. This is it. Spend a couple days working for them. Did did pretty well. I went out walking around the streets with her. You know, the two of us. We were going to like you know different businesses and trying to sell this automotive servicing package. And nailed a few sales on my first day. Um, you know, made two hundred fifty bucks in cash my first day, cash in hand. I'm like, damn, if I can make two hundred fifty bucks a day, I'm gonna be rolling here. So um, the uh, student group goes back to Canada, and I'm like, sorry guys, I can't go. I'm gonna stay. I'm going to stay. I'm going to work at this job. I'm going to pay for my university education and that's it. So everybody goes. I'm like, okay, bye guys. They leave. Now I'm in Brisbane by myself. And the kind of differing factor was that like, you know, my, uh, I, my, I was funding my education with a combination of student loans from the Canadian government and my parents um, is my dad was still, uh, my dad was still working when I started, but he just retired and, uh, he took out his pension and invested it. Um, and then in 2008, 2009, of course, was the big market crash. He lost like a quarter of his retirement fund and he was retired. He wasn't working anymore. So when I told him I was deciding to stay, he's like, well, you know, do what you got to do, but it's going to be on your own dime this time, Dan. I can't help you out on this one. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if I really actually believe that, but uh, I did stay and, and I took the risk. Um, and uh, as time went on, you know, about a week into that job, I discovered that this woman was not interested in me romantically at all. Not in the least. We were friends, sure. But no, this was not happening uh, romantically. And um, 
then it was just me walking around Australia selling little pieces of cardboard for $129. Knocking on doors. Getting paid zero unless I sell one of these little pieces of cardboard for $129. And, uh, you know, that was cool for a month or two. Made some friends. Got to know the city, Brisbane, driving around, walking around the neighborhoods and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of cool people. You can imagine the people like kind of international travelers looking for kind of a job they could just jump in and start doing. So anybody with a good personality could pretty much do this job. So, you know, Henry Meller from England, Jamie Smith from England, um, Charlie Meller, Henry's brother. Uh, there was a, you know, Gemma Kelly was the trainer, uh, who, uh, who I wanted to get with, but didn't want to get with me. There was Blaine, there was Brenda, uh, a couple other guys, Tim Latimer from Australia. And, you know, we would go out, walk the streets and try to sell these automotive servicing packages that were like, okay, it's 129 bucks for these coupons, basically, that all get you free automotive servicing, tire changes or tire rotations, oil changes, tune-ups, stuff like that, which in total added up to like 800 bucks. Yeah, so, you know, you'd just, you'd have to pay for your own gas. You'd drive around, you'd find the neighborhood, you'd knock on doors and try to squeeze sales out of the neighborhood. Um, and I fucking hated that. <laughs> Especially after I was like, I was already on the path. You know, I was like, I was like determined to get to my, to further my education. And I went to Canada. I put that year in of studying, you know, in Okanagan college, I upgraded my high school. I took all these university transfer programs and I was like, all I wanted to do is keep studying and keep furthering my education and go make something big of myself, you know? And then here I am stuck in Australia with no cash, no money, tr knock, walking around, knocking on doors, tr trying to sell little pieces of shit. And I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? And so later on that year, you know, my, the program that I was meant to go to was supposed to start in like September or something. So I spent the whole summer working there, just didn't make any number, any, any money. I was like, you know, just making enough to pay the rent and pay the, you know, bills and like hanging out with my friends and we we're having fun and getting drunk and stuff like that. But it was not what I wanted to be doing. And, um, so yeah, September rolled around and then I had to defer my start date to the next semester. So I like, I can't pay for this now. Dad's not helping me out. Canadian government loans aren't enough. So I have to kick it to January. So then I'm like, okay, now I got to work all through September, October, November as well. But I just, I did not want to do that anymore. I needed a better job. Problem was it was 2008, 2009 economic crisis. All the companies were on lockdown. They were only accepting Australia and New Zealand residents you know, who had, who had residency visas and I didn't have one. I had a working holiday visa, which means I could only work for any company for up to six months. So long story short, I searched and I searched and I searched and I couldn't get a job, not to mention didn't have a university degree, didn't have any real job experience. You know, I, I, my record made me look like a fucking loser at that time, which I basically was, you know, I, I jumped from job to job to job, you know, I'd didn't even have any good references like the electoral safety job that wouldn't give me a ref. Like most of my jobs I didn't end well on. Right. I kind of just thought like, screw this place. I'm done. And I like, just let it all fall off the track and like, you know, just quit or whatever. And most of my jobs were like six months at a time or one year at a time. 
didn't have any long-term jobs. So I could show no education. And if I did show education, it was terrible. I could show no good job history. And if I did, it wasn't good. And I couldn't provide references. And here I am like stuck there trying to get money. I didn't even money to go home to Canada. Like, so my educational path fell off the rails in Canada. And what I had planned to do in Australia also fell off the rails. So like, you know, after about four months of walking the streets of Brisbane, knocking on doors and barely making sales, um, I was getting really desperate, like really desperate and very depressed and very upset with myself. So, um, yeah. And, and, and I just, I couldn't get a job for the life of me. So I decided that desperate times call for desperate measures. And I researched the different working visas because like every, every job was like Australia, New Zealand residents only or, or these types of visas are acceptable. Working holiday visa is not acceptable. So I researched the types of the visas and I basically fabricated a de facto visa for myself which is just like, I've been with an Australian girl for more than two years. And you know, I've got this visa now that says I can work here and blah, blah, blah. So I fabricated a document. I took like a document, I put my name on it, stuff like that and made basically totally fake visa and, um, got like, uh, yeah, I might've even borrowed my friend's university degree. No, that wasn't no. Um, anyways, So then I started applying for jobs as an Australia resident and then, okay, I started getting some interviews and then I was able to use Gemma, that super hot trainer to speak some good words about me and, uh, and talk about how good I was. So, but I was still applying for sales jobs, right? That was basically the only thing I was really qualified to do. Anything else was like, well, what degree do you have? Well, I don't have a degree. And maybe back then, you know, you needed more degrees than you do now. I don't know. But I think to get in any job, people want to know, like, how do you know anything about this industry? Like, what's your experience? What are your talents? Why are you excellent for this position? Not why do I do you this favor, but why are you going to bring me some value for this? So anyways, I finally land a job with a solar power company. So I start, it's a sales job, selling panels, installing solar panels. And I'm like, okay, well, this is at least acceptable because I'm doing something good for the environment. Like I believe in solar power. I'm excited about solar power. I'm worried about climate change and I can do sales. And this job came with a base salary. So it wasn't just pure commission. It was like, okay, at least I get a salary for God's sakes, plus commission. And they give me a car and they give me a phone. So, um, you know, I, I had the interview with this job. I took this job and, uh, I started training for this job a few weeks into that job. I think I might've been there for three weeks or a month or something, you know, and I, and I could still like, I, I think this was around the start of November when I took this job, I, I was struggled to get, you know, I struggled to, uh, to get a job for a few months and then finally got this job, took the job, I think around the beginning of November. And at that point it was like, okay, this January start date that I had for my university program, it's not going to happen. 
So, you know, the January start date, I'm like, fuck, I got to defer this thing again. I'm not doing my education that I, you know, so like I've totally screwed up my track here. I got to kick that down the road to April now. And so then, um, yeah, I was still, I was just feeling really like, like I got a decent job now, but I, you know, I didn't, I, I'm not here to work a $50,000 a year sales job you know, drive, like it's better than selling car servicing, but it's still not what I'm doing. And I just, I I had a lot of regret for what I had done. And I was also really striking out with the ladies. Like it wasn't just Gemma. It was like every lady I talked, I was just not doing good with the ladies at all that year. Um, and I was drinking a lot, you know, smoking cigarettes. Um, and, uh, yeah, just not feeling very up on myself at all. I, I, at that, at that time, you know, I was 28 years old. Um, just turned 28 that year and not really doing good in life. Right. Not really like, you know, where I wanted to be. So, um, anyways, a few weeks into that, getting that sales job, I go out with, uh, with my buddy, Steve, one guy I met at, the at the, uh, you know, the, the sales job place selling audio, auto servicing, we go out, there's supposed to be this metal concert down in uh, the Valley in Brisbane. We go out and we go to this place and like, we got the wrong night. It was like, so we, you know, we had a few drinks and, and, and got pretty drunk and we went to this place. There's supposed to be a concert, but then we get there and they're like, yeah, no, that's tomorrow night. So we're like, oh shit. Well, anyways, had a couple more drinks and then, uh, and then, uh, went back home. He went to his place. I went to my place. So I get to my place. It was like maybe, you know, just before one o'clock, something like that. 12, one o'clock. I was living this place in South bank and I was renting just a room. So the guy I was living with was like non-smoker, no, you know, zero drugs and, and, you know, not parties and stuff like that. So, um, Anyways, I had some weed there. I, I grabbed a, a half a joint that I had uh, rolled up there, and I went down to this park down in South Bank. There's a nice big park down by the river, big spacious park. It's lovely. I used to go down and hang out sometimes. So I go down there and uh, sit by the river and smoke a joint. And, um, you know, still kind of like uh, yeah, pretty drunk from, from being at the bar. You know, we was drinking a lot of uh, Jim Beam at that time straight of course and um so it was like i think november 27th that year and so i smoke a joint and you know looking a little bit messed up and there was this big kind of rock face down there like a big cliff it's like a big sheer 20 25 meter cliff down at uh in south bank they call it kangaroo point and so, you know, because I lived down in South Bank, I'd always be like walking down there and I'd see people climbing it all the time. They had like, you know, ropes and like spotter, like people would practice rock climbing on this thing, like actually scaling this big cliff. And I'd seen it multiple times, but they had all the fit, the, they had all the safety equipment. They had the, um, you know, helmets and ropes and spotters and everything like that. Right. And so I'm, I'm down at South Bank Park and I go down to smoke a joint, sit by the river and it's November 27th, just before Christmas. And I turn around and this rock face has these Christmas lights on it, like these big kind of pink and purple 
like floodlights on it. So like the whole thing, this big massive rock formation is just is lit up with with pink and uh, purple floodlights and it looked really nice you know so i'm like i went over there and kind of you know put my hands on the rocks and 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 looked up at the top and kind of felt the rock and i'm like i wonder how hard it is to climb this thing so um i started climbing it and you know i was i was wearing dress shoes i was still in my the the clothes i wore to the bar you know it was jeans button-up shirt and uh dress shoes pointed pointy-toed dress shoes and i start climbing this thing and going up it and it's like okay well it's not so hard and I, I keep climbing up a little bit i was never intending to go all the way to the top and um i go up and i keep going up and then i think i got a little you know past the point of no return i'm like okay screw it i'm gonna go all the way up so i go all the way up almost i get about two meters from the top and like there's this big overhang and i like i'm like oh shit what am I going to do with this? I'm no professional rock climber. I've got no spotters. I've got, I'm like 20 meters off the ground and I'm like two meters from the top. So I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I like, don't know what to do. I'm a little bit fucked up I'm a little bit, you know, you know, just smoked a bit of weed been drinking all night. And I started to get nervous and I started to like panic and my arms start to shake and I'm like, Oh shit, what the fuck am I going to do? I look down, I try to, I start trying to climb down and like, I'm like, you know, in these pointy toe dress shoes, I can't see cause it's dark. And I'm like trying to get down. It's like, Whoa, that's not going to work either. So now I'm stuck way out there on this cliff and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. My hands are getting weak. My arms are getting weak. My knees are getting weak. And so I'm like, in the moment, I just, I tried to jump and reach the top part, the overhang to pull myself up, totally missed it and free fell 20 meters to the ground, smashed my femur and my pelvis almost died. And that was the end of my journey. I spent the next 40 days in the hospital and my life changed after that on part two we will catch up on the 40 days i spent in the Wollongaba hospital in rio thanks for listening i really appreciate you sharing your time with me tonight cheers to you i love you all and don't forget to check out the episodes coming out next week on the daniel cleveland podcast my friends have a happy new year cheers and much love the daniel cleveland podcast Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleveland podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, 
shamanismo, curanderismo, from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica. Check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out, down the pike, every day, just for you. Thanks again so much for joining. I appreciate it beyond words, and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, there's a contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.